Hello, I'm Chris Coates. Thank you for tuning in to the SMU Meadows School of the Arts 50-year anniversary podcast series. Today, I'd like to welcome Mary Vernon. After 50 years of teaching art and art history at SMU Meadows School of the Arts, Professor Vernon retired in May 2018. Over the years, she has chaired both the art and art history departments and taught hundreds of students, many of whom have gone on to be successful artists, authors, curators, and collectors. She has presented dozens of lectures to art and civic groups, written for various publications and journals, and served on arts boards. Simultaneously, she built a significant career as an artist. Her art has been shown in numerous exhibitions and in various books, articles, and essays, and is widely held in corporate and private collections, including the George W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum. Thank you, Mary, for helping Meadows celebrate its 50-year anniversary, and welcome today. Thank you, Chris, for inviting me. We're so excited. So tell me, it's been... 50 years, we've been talking about a 50-year celebration, and in May, it'll be your one-year anniversary since you retired from SMU. What have you been up to? I've been taking care of my full-time job, my my other full-time job, which is painting. At last, I have time to devote all my time to the studio, to the museum, to reading. That is excellent. So what has been some of the highlights? That Have you had any exhibitions, any types of programs you've been involved in? Well, there have been shows in, at the Grace Museum in Abilene. In the fall, this is always for the artists the more interesting thing. What happens next? Uh, in the fall, there will be two shows, a, a, a triplicate of us, um, Barnaby Fitzgerald, Lynn Medlin, and I are having a show of landscape at the bathhouse in September, and then there's a Valley House show in October. Wow, you've got a lot going on, so so much for (laughs) retirement. Yes. (laughs) Speaking of 50 years, let's go back to when you launched your teaching career in 1967, after having graduated from the University of New Mexico with your MA in Art and Art History. What were your aspirations at that time? I wanted a job. (laughs) Beyond that, I wanted a job teaching. Uh, naturally, I had a family to help support. Uh, I also thought of teaching as my natural calling. And uh, I was really lucky to find Jerry Bywaters actually wanted me to come work here. And let's talk about you working here. During your 50 years at Meadows, what were the most satisfying aspects about teaching art and art history? Well, the most, the most rewarding thing uh, uh, about about teaching is the students, of course. Actually having someone willingly listen to you, quite remarkable. But the faculty and the museum, the Meadows Museum, and the smallness of the university, that is is both a good and a bad thing, uh, made me feel comfortable here. And you had quite a family you relied on here that are part of your SMU family from faculty to uh, lots of memories. Yes. And I want to go through some of those because I want to name a few people and a few names that I'd like to share and give you those names and you tell me the first thing you think of when you hear these names. First one, Jerry Bywaters. Jerry Bywaters was the old prince and king of art and art history at SMU, though of course he was not the longest lasting chair, but he was both chair of 
the Dallas Museum of Art and the art department at SMU for a long time. He was a, a cultural treasure of studies of American art history and Mexican-American art history. He had written for Life magazine about Ribera. Um, and what I think about is the wonderful, the wonderful experience of meeting him at, at the Love Field, which was the only airport, of course. And I wondered how I would recognize this guy I was supposed to meet. I flew in. He had my application letter safety pinned to the front of his suit coat. Oh my goodness. Standing when we got off the plane. And I thought, oh, this is great. He's just like one of my uncles, only maybe scarier. <laughs> Why do you say scarier? Well, he had more power. Oh, that's true. My, for instance, he was the boss, or the boss to be. He turned out to be adorable. One of the things he asked me when we sat down in the coffee shop at, the, at Love Field to, to have our first little talk was, remember, this was 1967. Remember how hair was then? Remember hairdos? He said to me, is that all your hair? <laughs> <laughs> after, a, after we had said a few introductory things. And of course it wasn't, you know, one put, one put piles of falls on top of one's head and pinned them all down. Oh he wasn't my going gosh. to let in, any of that nonsense get, get past his notice. And what's probably the biggest thing that you remember working with him after all of this? He was protective, completely protective of his faculty, exactly the model of a chair. There was a time when my students had conducted a happening in a, in a science classroom, which was the classroom I taught in. And uh, they had cleaned up after their happening, but their happening was quite wild because they had studied how happenings were done in the 60s. And I believe several chemistry faculty actually wanted me fired after this. And Jerry just told the president or the provost or whoever he had to tell. He said, don't worry about her. She'll, she'll, she'll mature. It was just, it's just art history. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I never knew any of that oh. until later. Oh than my I, gosh. But he defended the faculty that way all the time. That is excellent. Okay, another name, Larry Shoulder. Well, Larry was kind of, they, they actually referred to us in, among the faculty as the twins. Larry was my, my age. He came one year after I did. He, was, he and his wife, Carol, were my best friends. Larry was a kind of wise man, um, uh, he always knew the tactically correct thing to do at a time that would produce the right result. Give me an example. I was just about to. <laughs> um, once, when he was chair of the art department, uh, there was the Bachelor of Fine Arts show that students are required to have. And in that show was a drawing by one of our best graduating students, uh, a very geometric drawing, big charcoal. And it, it was actually, a, let's say, pigs making love. Uh, but it was a pair of big boxes. It was quite geometrically simple. And some some member of the Meadows family who was more conservative 
demanded that that thing was dirty and be taken down from the show. And the dean, the dean told this to Larry. And Larry said, well, if you want to order the show taken down, we'll just take all of the show down, or we'll take all the pictures and turn them face to the wall. That's what we'll do. We don't take one picture down. Wow, what a statement. And the dean said, oh, well, I guess the dean said, oh, well, uh, let's just work around it another way. They never, I think they never did actually take that painting down, that drawing down. But you do know that the, the person who complained about it was oddly off kilter a little because in the collection of paintings bought by Mr. Meadows for the Meadows Museum was the great Murillo painting. Um, Jacob laying striped rods before the flocks of Laban. <laughs> Jacob producing a black sheep so that he could have them. It's in the Bible story because the, the girl sheep were staring at striped rods while they were mating with males. That would produce some black sheep. And there were pictures of sheep making love, let's say, by the riverside in that great painting in the Meadows Museum. So there was actually no reason not to show animals in art. Exactly. Mating. Wow. <laughs> yes. Larry was tactical that way. He knew how to wisely and sensibly approach a problem, a, a challenge. He did it many times. Well, I've heard that you're the same way, and you have some strong stances on your opinions of things, and I want to run one by you. I've heard that one of your favorite topics is the power of women in the SMU art department. Explain what that means. Well, it's odd that somebody said to me, uh, when, was the, when was the first woman a faculty member hired? Wasn't it sometime in the 70s? And I said... Well, no. Uh, Stelle Lamond, who was a great lithographer, was worked at the SMU art department from 19, I think, 37 to 1959, and for a great amount of that time, 10 years or more, was the chair of the art department. And around her were women who were all parts of that women artist printmaker kind of aesthetic that was very big in North Texas. Incredible. And so she was Jerry Bywaters' boss for a large part of the time, and then he became boss. The legend of his bossiness is, is famous, hers not so much. And then, of course, we had, we had a female chair in the middle of the 70s, Eleanor Tufts. And there were always, there were always a, good, a good mixture of women and men faculty members. The men tended to try to boss things around a great deal, but they didn't always win. That's good. <laughs> Girl power, right? Girl power. Even back then. All right. Share with us what you called the magic of having the Meadows Museum in the old days near the classrooms and studios. What does that mean? Uh, at one time, uh, Bill Jordan, the director of the Meadows Museum, was also chair of the art department. He was he he followed Jerry Bywaters in the in the role as chair. So he arrived in about sixty eight. 
And he was there until, he was there as, as chair of both things until the mid-70s and continued as chair of the museum for a while. Um, he was interested in, in artists and art historians and how they worked. He was himself a great art historian of Spanish art. The Meadows Museum was in the building, right on the same floor as, say, the painting studios. And within, let's say, uh, 75 feet of most, of most of us working. And Bill, because he cared about people's ideas and opinions, would come down the hall to an office or to a classroom, and he would say, Mary, um, we just got in this courbet that we're, we're thinking about. Uh, I wish you'd come look. I thought, a chance to look? Um, and so the painting would be there in his office, and one could look at the front and the back of it. One could see how it was it was painted. One could touch certain parts of it, not perhaps the paint, and and discuss with him things that maybe looked weak, things that looked strong, maybe tell him things that were strong that he either hadn't noticed or pretended not to have noticed. Uh, the whole the whole interaction of people with works of art in the Meadows Museum in the building was magic, and of course. One could also take the students down the hall and say to somebody in the classroom, well, I'd like for you to handle this kind of in the Goya-like way. You, have you ever thought of that? And they would say, well, I don't know anything about Goya. Oh, come with me, you would say, and drag them down to the museum and look at um, the Madhouse at Saragossa or other Goyas that the Meadows Museum owned and let them see exactly how the painting was made. What an experience. That's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Mm -hmm. Bill was a great force for art in this, in this community, in what we call the Metroplex. He was, he was influential in all those communities. And the community itself, that's something I wanted to talk to you about, because the art community is changing so much from even back then. So what advice can you give to young art students about developing their art and careers, including the educational business of art? Because it has changed a great deal. And I do think, I do think at this point someone would answer to you really strategic and practical things about how to treat dealers and how to talk to other people, but actually everybody knows how to do that. I mean, they're, they're psychology professors know how to tell them that. The only thing that really matters is learning to see and then to be able to act upon what you see by using it, making something like it, and also to be able to write about it or speak about it, to be able to, to put into words what it is in that Goya that you're looking at. And in order to do that, you have to see it really. Mm -hmm. And you have to be trained to see things Seeing is, is a sliding scale of talents in a human being. Some, some human beings can see well enough not to run in front of buses and be killed, and they can see no better than that. But some human beings can see everything, the way things are structured, the way things are colored. If you, if you settle on trying to learn that, everything else will take care of itself. 
Exactly. Great points. But it comes along the line, too, of teaching art and the exhibition of arts in the future. How do you see that that's going to change? Because you came from a really instrumental time where you could go look at some of these great pieces of work and take your students there. What's changing now, and what do you see how it's going to change with in this world of technology where everything's online and it's all about social media? And Well, it, I... In one way, the world of art has swollen out with new, with new technical abilities. Ever since photography or printmaking, the world of art has grown with more and more capabilities. So all of those capabilities are great. To, to be able to code in order to make a visual thing happen, that's a great thing. And those are all there to be studied and looked at. Um, I, I do only concern myself, worry a little bit about the, any trend, which is a, a very powerful trend at the moment, to view works of art as illustrations of something else. Um, let's look at it in context, someone says. This was made because this king hated this man, and the hatred is there, illustrated in the sculpture as if the sculpture was made as, as a marginal visual aid to the historical event. In fact, when you make a work of art, you have made a new physical object, even if it's all code, it's all electricity. You've made a new physical object that has its own new lessons to teach, that can't be an illustration of something else because it's a new rearrangement of physical entities. Right. And I, I do worry a little bit that we regard some art as illustrations of other events, like racism or, or power or love of nature. Yes, that could be there, but the artwork is a physical thing itself. Exactly. I want to talk about some of your experience. So you're well known for being a master of color theory. Did the time you spent in New Mexico influence your use of colors in your work, and if so, how? It would be so lucky for me if I were regarded as a master of color theory. <laughs> Let's say that some more. Um, yes, growing up in New Mexico is, is uh, an education in color. And that's because, in general, deserts have, have more color demands upon the imagination than jungly forests. Because the desert is spare and because the colors are muted, um, you have to find out which tans are yellow tans and which tans are blue tans, which grays are green grays and which grays are brown grays. And then you're totally surprised by the emergence of something that's magenta because it's a flower on a cactus. That's all true. But also, in, in desert places where there's water, there are, there are odd happenings, at least I found growing up. Um, leaves on, on trees tend to be shiny on one side and dull on the other. And when the wind is blowing, wind being a prime factor in New Mexico, when the wind is blowing, the leaves are turned over, and they're all the dusty side of the leaves, not the shiny side, an entirely different color of green. 
of the rocks my father built our house out of were field stone rocks. That means every color there is was in the house, but all in grays. I thought hollyhocks were, were magic plants because they had those brilliant colors in the summertime. They also have that wonderful smell. So a, a desert place taught me how to see almost everything. Which is amazing because some people would think that that would be the least inspirational place to find that artistic growth. How did you know growing up that you wanted to be an artist? What was it that inspired you to go down this route? Well, I I either knew it all the time or didn't know it at all. I don't know quite which. I, I have my earliest favorite painting was made when I was a child, but I didn't think of myself as a painter. I just put some colors down on a stick, and I knew they were the best. But I, I really thought I wanted to be a doctor. I thought that in, in college, in undergraduate school. And uh, Berkeley had such a fine pre-med program that they showed us what medicine's whole life was really like, and whereupon I discovered I didn't like sick people, <laughs> which is one of the things a doctor ought to be able to do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it, simultaneously, they had great art classes. And I, I found out that actually I liked, I liked to look at things and then figure out how to make other visual things. When you talk about the things that you've made over the years, and every artist says this, writers say this, they say that their creations are like their babies, that they love them all the same. But is there one that stands out? And then is there one that you sometimes look at and I thought, think, oh, if I could do that again, I would. I must be a very cruel mother because, <laughs> because I hate some of them. <laughs> um, my favorite one is always the most recent one. I'm always entranced by what has just been done what has just been finished. Um, so I don't, I have my favorite first thing long disappeared that I made when I was perhaps four years old, the two stripes of paint on a stick. That, that was actually, I think, my best painting. And then my most recent painting is my favorite. And, and the things that are before it, the things that are in between, I regard them as, um, as a, you could call them, apostles or little pioneers they're supposed to go out into the work and do their do their they're supposed to go out into the world and do their work on other people and leave me alone they are supposed to reside somewhere else and exert their influence somewhere else that is amazing what how what thought process do you go through to get these creations? Because do you ever get where you feel like, okay, I can't outdo that one. That one was so amazing that what am I going to do next? Yes, or do you have yes lists? I do. Oh, I do get it. <laughs> I think, wow, that might be the best one. Um, I, get all, I get told what to do by the materials, the, the paint, the surfaces. The paint is older than I am, believe it or not. And and it knows what it wants to do. It knows more about painting than I do. So I try some things and see what it wants to do. And then I, I obey what the, what the material wants to do. Wow, that's incredible. Think about teaching. You've had 
you were here 50 years. Yes. What was it about Meadows that made you just stay here over and over again? I'm sure there's probably other opportunities for you to go to other universities or other offers that came along. Well, I, I am a kind of steady state person. Once you put me in a place, it's likely I'm not going anywhere. That's the underlying baseline. But uh, at SMU, I found uh, the faculty to be uh, more uh, welcoming, yet more daunting, because they were so good. So many people in so many departments who did so many things I couldn't understand. Uh, yet, they were the faculty was small enough, and I could get to know them. And then I got fond of them, especially my colleagues in art and art history. And I, when I would go to other institutions, I'm not sure that I perceived this kind of um, generosity and intelligence immediately. I don't know if I just missed it. But I found it the way I liked it here, so I didn't go anywhere. And that, that was to our benefits. And, of course, of course I, I got tenure, which, of course, one must do in order to get to stay. <laughs> exactly. But that was good. That good was very good. And our students. Mm -hmm. It's been one year since you've retired. What have you done to reward yourself? What have you done to mm -hmm. let loose and say, I'm retired, I'm going to do whatever I want? I don't get up at 530 anymore. That's my reward. That's a reward. Yes. What, I don't now, set six the, or what? Well, 6.30 or 7. I don't have to get up except to get to yoga. I don't have to get up except when I say. And that's perfect. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not running against a deadline anymore. What have you, I, I love what um, I've heard this about you is you've said that there is a danger in inviting an art historian for dinner <laughs> and so you probably get invited to a lot of dinners what does that mean what are oh, people well, in for I was just thinking of one of the cases early in my career at SMU uh, and one's more in danger when one is young and, and thinks one knows a lot but I went to dinner at a house in Dallas and I was clearly there because I well I my husband and I were there and I was there because I was the the, um, the professor, I think that that's why we were invited, my being a, the professor, maybe because there was a the son or daughter of, a, of the parents involved. In any case, the, uh, the father uh, showed me their painting by Velasquez. And I said, oh, oh, yes. He said, yes, this is Los Parachos by Velasquez. And, and I said, it's, um, it is a very f famous painting that is in the Prado, because, of course, this was a, this was a print that had been framed in the, in the den. He said, no, this is the Velasquez. I said, well, uh, it's a little smooth. <laughs> and I ran my, my, well, I don't know if it was under glass or not, but I ran my hands across it. It was paper. It was... I said, one, you know they make reproductions of famous paintings, but this is the real one, he said. I said, well, okay. <laughs> <gasps> and what did he say? Nothing. 
did he, do you still think that he believes that it was? He can't now. I mean, he must have gotten older and wiser. But, but then, I can't imagine how he got a print, which must have cost not too much. Maybe the frame was expensive. He must, he must have thought, must have seen it in a book and thought, I've got that. You just, if you invite people over to dinner who know more than you do, you, you have to keep your mouth shut. And so do they. <laughs> so do the guests. I should have said nothing at all and said, aha. <laughs> what else do you consider yourself an expert of? If you were going to be invited to dinner, what would be the top talking points that you could rattle off that people would have a, whole t- a hard time holding their own? Oh, I don't think anything. I'm, I'm the least expert at most subjects. I, I find that hard to believe because you just <laughs> but are so I did, confident. But I had been to see the Velasca. I knew about that one, but I was too stupid to keep my mouth shut. One other question <laughs> I've got to know because you talked about doing yoga and everything else you do, but what is on your bucket list still that you want to try that maybe would shock some of your peers? I don't think this would shock any of them. I actually, you, you know, I don't want to skydive or anything like that. Um, right, so these things won't shock anyone. You know, with the new news about Notre Dame in Paris, I want to be there at the unveiling of the new Notre Dame when it's rebuilt. Or not at the moment, but I want to go see the new one because it's such a challenge to rebuild that building. Exactly. And then I'd like to be, I'd love to be in the, I would love to visit the storage areas of great museums. Uh, I want to be sometime in the storage at the Met and in the Louvre. I'd love to be in the storage there. I love the storage areas of museums, places where you never can go. Do you think with today's technology that some of the just feel of artwork has changed from more of a computer base to getting rid of the texture side of the paints and the oils and how do you feel about that or is there still that no I think the full spectrum is there there are people whose paint comes is is two inches thick on the surface there there's even an artist wish I remembered her name at this very moment who makes paint surfaces that have no support underneath them that can be draped across the back of chairs. The paint is itself a skin. That's phenomenal. There's, there's a huge spectrum from made out of almost nothing to made out of most of something. So how, what would you recommend for listeners to do in order to keep up with the art world or to even just to be able to explore a little bit without feeling inundated or overwhelmed? Museums. I do, I do like the idea of art magazines, yes. Some of them are a little pretentious. Um, mu- museum, it, it's, it's, all of it's just sitting there waiting for you to look at it. And you can look at it for 10 minutes or you can look at it for an hour. It, it is just sitting there. You can get close to it, you can get far away from it. The physical object is waiting there for you to be with it. Between art, different types of art, if you had to had a chance to have dinner with any artist, who would it be and why? It could be current, it could be past. 
Well, I, when questions like this arise, I always wonder, when, when someone says, who would you like to have dinner with, and someone says, Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, uh, well, you know, I don't speak her language. I don't want to have dinner with Eleanor of Aquitaine, by the way, but, uh, and does she want to have dinner with me? The question is, do I actually get to command that Rembrandt should be forced to have dinner with me? Uh, and I cannot speak 17th century Dutch. So will that work at all? <laughs> <laughs> but, if he, but if he spoke modern English and if he agreed, I would love to have dinner with Rembrandt. And for what reason? Like, what would be some of the questions you would ask? Well, you know he didn't write anything, which means all you'd have to do is get him talking, and that everything he would say would be new. Um, I don't even, I know how thick the paint is. I know that it's thick in a particularly beautiful way. I know that it almost doesn't crack because of how well he did it. I know that he felt it intensely emotionally. Um, if he talks about all of that stuff, or about his love life, or about his vast costume collection, or about his son, or I would just love to hear what he has to say in general. I get the same feel from listening to you. I feel like you're a very deep person in that when you talk about that your art speaks to you and tells you what to do and your paints, how would you, where would you say that comes from? Are you consider, do you consider yourself um, somebody that studies um, the different greats out there that have come along? I mean, where do you get that from, that deep inner piece that seems to come with you and goes into your art? Oh, I don't know about the piece part. I just, I know about the paintings. You learn about the paintings in the museum. Those are the people who hold them for you. Thank God for museum. <laughs> um, and um, I suppose you get more, more calm and peaceful by getting older. <laughs> you live long enough, you lose everything, you find out about everything, you find out how wrong you have been and what you have done, you try not to do it again. I suppose it's just experience. And in that experience, last question, what would you say has been the words that you live by that who said them to you or maybe they're just words that you came up with on your own that you live by? Well, m my grandmother was a great quoter of this statement of Socrates, which she said was a statement of Socrates. Be what you want to seem to be. Or her short version, be what you want to seem. <laughs> Thank you so mm -hmm. much for meeting with us today and sharing your ideas and being a part of Meadows history. Thank you, Chris. You're a wonderful interviewer.